For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. All right, kids ages 3 through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if they'd like. The rest of you, if you've got a Bible with you, turn it into the book of 1 Corinthians. That's in the New Testament. Hey, just as a kind of a reminder, if you're a member, regular attender, and you miss our informational meeting, uh, we did record that. That'll be up. We'll post it on the city for you uh, so that you can find it there. If, if, you're, if you're not a member, regular attender, and, but, but you're interested in becoming one, and you just heard me say the city, and you're like, what is that? That's our online community network. Um, it's kind of a... It's kind of like social media that's just for our church and only accessible by our church. Um, it's, where our, it's our hub of information. If you'd like to know how to become a part of that, I would love to help you with that. Or uh, Jason Bailey can help you with that, but we would love to get you into that. Okay? So, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there, the text is in your bulletin. It's in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's a couple on the back table we'd love to give you. Uh, apparently, a lot of you took us up on that last week, because there were a lot more back there last week, and they are all gone. So that's awesome. That's our gift to you. We'd love to give that to you. So... One of the things that I love about being a Christian as a way to kind of ease us into this time, and it's easy to forget in our highly individualistic culture, is that Christianity existed before us, <laughs> right? Like, it's not like the faith kind of popped into existence when we came to know Jesus, that actually we are part of something ancient. We didn't come up with this belief system, this structure, this community. It came long before us, and it'll be here long after us, should the Lord tarry. And, and the creeds remind us of that. Right? This church is a confessional church. We hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's something that, that's a, a summary of the teachings of the Bible. It was written in the 1640s. That's a long time. The Apostles' Creed is even older. Like this is, this is uh, you know, om, this, this is like 1,300, 1,400 years old. And they, it reminds us that, that we are part of something bigger because they've been recited in the church for centuries and they will continue to be a summary of what the Bible teaches. And so that's why we're taking uh, the next, the, these few months in the fall to kind of look into what, what, is it, um, what is it that we're confessing when we confess the Apostles' Creed? What, what are these individual uh, assertions that are made and where do they come from in the Bible? Uh, how are we to understand it? That's what, we're, that's what we're doing. And so first we looked at God the Father Almighty, right? The fact that, that God um, in Christian understanding and, and the way the Bible teaches is that uh, the work of Jesus doesn't just make us forgiven, but makes God our Father. It's a unique aspect of God. Uh, totally unique in religious thought. And then after that, we looked at how Jesus is both fully God and fully human, right? And how he, we need him to be both. Uh, and then last week, uh, Tim Frost was here and, and did a great job of helping us understand how it is that Jesus and his, his death satisfied the justice of God. And, and this week we look at the reality of his death. 
and his bodily resurrection. So if you have your place, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. If you'd stand in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. I'm going to be reading verses 12 to 22. And as I read this, I just want to remind us of something. Some of you may be familiar with this passage. Some of you aren't. Um, Great Christian thinkers throughout the ages have looked at 1 Corinthians 15 and said that if there is a chapter that is that the gospel actually um, rests upon, it is this one. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. So hear it in that way. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For if in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know uh, where I'm at, where we're at as people here in this place. We need you to come, your spirit to work. For the idea of, uh, of someone rising from the dead is foolishness, uh, even if it is true. And so, Lord, we, we need you and your power, your spirit, to open our hearts to the truth of your word, to, to preach the gospel to us. Whether we are here uh, and have been walking with Jesus forever, as long as we can remember, or are here and we don't, we've, we've never even really considered the claims of Jesus We all need you to work in our hearts this morning. So we ask that you would do that. Let everything that Jesus has done, not just his cross, but his empty tomb, come to the fore. And let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. Jesus, you hold the words of eternal life. And we would cling to you this morning as Mary did when she saw you. And pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. It's no secret... um, at least in this church, it's no secret. If you know me, you know that, that uh, my favorite series of books, both for depth of thought and, and power of story, is uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm not a big fan of the movies, honestly. I've been reading those books almost yearly since I was in middle school, and I'm not a big fan of the movies. They just mess with the story too much. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. One of, one of the most famous scenes in these series of books is in the last of the trilogy, The Return of the King, in which... Um, Frodo, who was the ring bearer, and Sam, his, his faithful companion, had just destroyed the ring of power. They're, they're, they're um, laying themselves down on an exploding volcano because they're out of strength. They're dead, and they're kind of giving up the ghost. But then all of a sudden, Sam wakes up, and he's not on a volcano anymore. He's in a bed in a pleasant place where the air is sweet and the birds are singing. It's called Ithilien. 
And as he's sitting there, he wakes, him, he, he awakes from his sleep and he asks, I guess, the first logical question that would come to a hobbit besides when is breakfast, and that's, what time is it? And he hears a voice tell them that it's, tells him the time, tells him the date, that he's in the keeping of the king. Sam opens his eyes, looks out, and he blurts out, Gandalf, have all sad things become untrue? So here is this, this man who, who thought himself dead, laid himself on a, literally, the volcano is exploding. There is lava falling around him. He's going to die. The world is coming to an end. Suddenly he's alive, and next to him is someone else that he watched fall to his death about a year previous. It was as if the world was made new. Tolkien didn't come up with that imagery. He came up with the unique perspective of it, the unique expression of it. He didn't come up with it. He had gotten that from his Christian faith, from the the grand story of the Bible. And I, I dare say it was implanted in him when Sunday after Sunday, going to a very liturgical church, he recited the same words we do. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. This truth is crucial to Christianity and it's crucial to life as a Christian that because of the resurrection of Jesus, all sad things are becoming untrue. So we're going to look at this text in three ways. I know that's shocking to you. Uh, We're going to look at um, disputing the resurrection. We're going to look at proclaiming the resurrection. And then we're going to look at how we can experience the resurrection. Disputing, proclaiming, and experiencing. And there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. Okay? So as we do that, let me set this up really quick. This passage is in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written to the church in an ancient city of Corinth that was written by the Apostle Paul, who, though he didn't start his life as a Christian, uh, became one and ended up being this incredible missionary for the early church, planted most of the churches in the Mediterranean area, or at least a, a large portion of them. He also wrote almost half of the New Testament. Like, there's 27 books or letters in the New Testament. He wrote 13 of them. He wrote a ton of them. Uh, And so, he's writing the city to a church in Corinth. Corinth was a city in Greece located at the intersection of two trade routes, the north-south and the east-west, as things came into Europe. So, it was was a center of learning. Uh, It was a center of finance. Uh, it was a center of culture, and it was insanely diverse. It was a lot like the Roman version of Manhattan. And so Paul planted a church there, but since he left to plant others, a bunch of problems had sprung up. Some of these are moral. <laughs> so many of them are moral, in fact. Uh, like, um, like a guy sleeping with his stepmom. Like, what? That's in the church? Yeah. Yeah, we're messed up too. Uh, and so that's going on and, and, and other things. And all, Most of these moral issues, though, are grounded in theological beliefs. Beliefs like the one he addresses here. See, some had begun to believe there's no such thing as a resurrection. And now some of you are like, wait a minute, Rick. What does is, what is the idea of a resurrection have to do with misuse of sexuality? That's a great question. Because you see... Christianity believes that our life in the body matters, that our bodies matter. Not just that our bodies are matter, but that they actually matter to God. Because you see, if the body doesn't matter, if it's just a shell, whether that's a shell that you have to wade in to get to heaven, or a shell that you wade in to to kind of gain your, your truer self, 
then who cares what you do in it? It's just the body, right? But the Bible teaches, though, that it does matter because Jesus was raised. Look down at verses 12 to 13. Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. Now stop there. You see, many of us, whether, whether we think we do or not, have come to believe that the, that the idea of a bodily resurrection from the dead is so foolish that only primitive people could believe in it, right? That's that historical arrogance that kind of takes over of us. We've been so inundated with this idea that all of history and knowledge is progressing in one direction that when we look back and we think on things like religious truth and all that, we go, isn't that so silly? Those primitive people. But here is Paul. Here is Paul saying that it was difficult to grasp for ancient people as well. Do you th- I mean, how many people have you seen get up at a wake? Right? At a viewing. They're suddenly like, oh, I'm good. We're good now. And, you know, the- none, right? Neither did they. <laughs> Neither did they. It, it would have been crazy. It's not just unscientific. It's nuts. So maybe you can relate to what most scholars think was going on here. So let me explain. Scholars will say that what, when he says that people are saying there's no resurrection of the dead, it's probably one of three beliefs that had kind of gotten into the church. And we're not really sure which, which one, but we, all, but we know that there's probably one of these three. See, some thought that the resurrection of the dead was a purely spiritual idea. It was kind of a metaphor. Right? It's, a, it's a spiritual idea that, that it was as if there was a rebirth. And in some way, this is like when you're, um, if you're out doing yard work on a hot summer day and, and you just feel nasty and grimy and you get, you get in from that and you take a shower and you feel refreshed. Right? It's like the spiritual version of refreshing. Irish spring. You know, that kind of thing. Some of us think of it that way. It doesn't mean literally raised from the death. It's just kind of a metaphor. But for others, the, the idea of resurrection of the dead meant some kind of enlightened spirituality. I've come to some kind of knowledge that's, that's higher than others. And maybe that's true for you. Maybe you think that being a Christian is kind of having um, an intellectual upper hand. Or, or at least a spiritual upper hand. You're better than other people. More moral. Whatever. Still others had a hard time because of the notion of the resurrection. The only framework they could have for someone being raised from the dead was like The Walking Dead, right? It's like some bad zombie movie, and we were talking about corpses walking around, like, brains. Like, that's, that's what they would have thought of. How could raising of corpses be of God, right? But Paul is really clear that this is a very visceral reality. When he says the resurrection of the dead, he's very clear. He doesn't say resurrection. He says the resurrection from the dead. The dead means the dead, like not living, the cessation of life. Now we can say duh, but maybe not. Like in terms of Jesus, what Paul means is that Jesus really died. He didn't just kind of pass out. I mean, I'm sure he did before he died. Maybe we need to remember what it was that Jesus died from. Because Roman crucifixion wasn't this nice little happy event. First, the skin on his back was flayed from him. And after all of that, after he had been beaten and pummeled and spit upon and stripped naked and 
and stripped of the skin of at least his back. Then he was nailed to a cross where he was left there to asphyxiate. And because um, somebody wanted, like, hey, can we, can we speed this up? Then Roman centurions, who were professional death dealers, by the way, like they knew a little something about killing people, it was their job. They went to go make sure the other two were dead, because there were three people crucified at the same time. They, they had to break their legs to make sure they would suffocate. That's so merciful of them, to make sure they would then suffocate. But then Jesus, they said, oh, like he's already dead. They said, well, we got to make sure. So they jammed a spear under his rib cage into his side and then yanked it out. The guy didn't pass out. He was dead. His heart stopped pumping. His lungs stopped expanding. He died. And so when Paul says raised, he does not mean spiritually. He means physically. This is a physical reality. Jesus wasn't alive, and then he was. You with me? Okay, I just want to be clear on that. This doesn't, and this, because this also doesn't mean as a spirit. It means with a body. A resurrected physical body that other people touched and grabbed a hold of. Like we heard Rebecca, by the way, like high five Rebecca later. She got the short end of the straw. That was a lot of reading. So that was awesome and she did a great job, right? So, uh, but like people grabbed him. We all think that like there are stories in the gospel where Jesus kind of just appears in a room where like, oh, he just kind of walked through a door. No, he's the Lord of creation. It's just as likely the door got out of his way. Right? He, he ate with people. He was grilling fish on the beach. His dudes are out, out fishing. He's like grilling fish. Like, come on, we're going to eat. And they eat breakfast. Fish for breakfast. I don't know. But Jesus did it. So it must be okay. Right? So Paul is saying that he was raised with a physical body. And to deny a resurrection in general, he says, means you're denying the resurrection of Jesus. Now let's follow that logic, okay? Because it's a gospel necessity. Look down at verses 14 and 19. This is Paul doing some logical work. It can be summed up like this. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, then three things are true. Our preaching is useless. Your faith is empty and futile. And everyone who has died as a Christian is lost forever. Now, that sounds a little drastic, but, is it, but it isn't. I mean, remember, Christianity does not preach a series of rules. It isn't a set of rules to follow to get to God. Christianity is about God taking to himself humanity and Jesus to keep the rules for you, not so that you could somehow find your way to God, but to get you to God. That's what Christianity is about. This is why Jesus died, because all of us have broken relationship with God. We betrayed him. We sought our independence from him. That's what the Bible calls sin. And so Jesus came to live perfectly and to die to bear the weight of that sin. We deserved hell and he took it willingly in our place so that we didn't have to. And then he rose again, not just to show, hey, look how great I am. He rose again as God's not guilty verdict. The verdict that had been placed on him on the cross was guilty, imposter, false king of the Jews, and, and sinner, by the way, because they were all like saying, he's such a sinner, God won't save him. And then God raised him from the dead. Not guilty. This is important, so listen close. You and I cannot make ourselves right with God. God is pleased with us in Christ, or he is not pleased with us. 
And so if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if he didn't rise on the third day, frankly, I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say to you. I can give you a bunch of rules that you can't keep. I can stand up here and pretend that I do well keeping them, but I don't. I have nothing to say to you. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless because we are still in our sins. There is no not guilty verdict. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, there is no reconciliation with God. And we're all doomed. (laughs) You with me? You know, some of you are probably thinking, like, I don't, I don't know. I, can't I just believe in Jesus without this whole resurrection thing? No. I mean, you can believe that he existed. That doesn't ask anything of you. So if that's what you mean by belief, then, then sure. But you're going to end up thinking that the dude was a fraud. So he's not really, I mean, it, it would be like believing Napoleon existed. There was this guy named Napoleon. I'm certainly not placing my faith in him. He's only this tall. You know, like, I'm not going to do that. The reformer Martin Luther, uh, 16th century reformer Martin Luther, said that for one not to believe the resurrection, quote, he must deny in a lump the gospel and everything that is proclaimed about Christ and of God. John Calvin, another 16th century reformer, said that Paul, quote, refers to the doctrine of the resurrection as the gospel. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then he was a sinner just like us. And we are still in our sins. And we should just board up this place and walk out. If you're here hoping that you're going to get good morals, your kids are going to get good morals, and that's why you're coming to church, can I tell you, like, you're wasting your time. If that's what this is about, we are all wasting our time. But the reverse is also true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, if you had a guy who walked around for three years and every once in a while spit out something out of his mouth like, um, oh, by the way, I'm about to be given up to the Gentiles and the leaders of the Jews to be crucified, but don't worry, in three days I'll rise from the dead. And then it happened, like dude predicted it, and then it happened. We should probably listen to everything he said. He might, in fact, be worthy of placing our life in his hands. If he, can, if he can come through on that prediction and actually get it right, I'm willing to trust him with everything. So that's Paul's logic. But then he turns a corner to proclaim the resurrection in verse 20, and so will we. Let's look at the promised future. Look down at verse 20. He says, but in fact, I love that, but in fact, in truth, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, stick with me a second. I need to explain this. The Bible teaches that death is not natural. I know that we don't believe that. Death is a part of life. No, it's not. Death is death. Life is life. Like, duh. Okay? Death is not a part of life. Death is a foreign invader. It is the, it is the curse that came with sin. And so when God promised to deal with sin... Eliminating death is simply part of the deal. I mean, think with me. If death comes because of sin, and you deal with sin, then there's no more death, right? That makes sense. This is where the notion of first fruits is important. First fruits. That's an agricultural term. Duh. I mean, of course that is. But the first fruits are basically the first harvest of a crop. But in the Bible, 
What they, are, what they are understood as is the promise of more to come. Right? Your first fruits, the first kind of thing that you take off of the vine. Like, it, some, you know, half y'all grow something in the summertime. You know, you grow vegetables or whatever. And you take the first tomatoes off. It's not be like, wow, this were great. And then you plow the thing under. You know what I mean? I mean, some of you do. My wife would. Like, she is like, as soon as the flowers come out, it's like she gets about two weeks with them. She's like, I'm done with these. You know, like, uh, which is great. That's because then she puts out new ones and they're beautiful. But the point is, first fruits mean that more are coming. And so to call Jesus the first fruits means that his resurrection is the down payment. It's the promise that we who put our faith in him will be raised as well. Because you see, Christians don't just believe that Jesus was raised as kind of this freak thing that happened. Crazy stuff happens, right? I once had a person, I was sharing the gospel with somebody, and, and um, I'm trying to, you know, because I, was, I, I uh, became a Christian in Campus Crusade for Christ, and in Campus Crusade for Christ, they're really big on this guy named Josh McDowell who did apologetics, and it was basically like, if you can convince someone of the resurrection, you got them, they've got to believe everything else. I'm like, okay. I can do that. So I convinced somebody of the resurrection. I'm sitting there working with this guy who's a philosophy major with me, and we're talking about the resurrection. And so finally he goes, okay, yeah, that, that makes total sense. I go, great. Do you want to accept Jesus? He goes, no. He's like, look, man, infinite time and chance. Anything's possible. I went, uh, uh, okay, um, let me start again, and I, you know, because that's the whole point. You're supposed to, if you convince somebody of this, it, it's not just this crazy thing that happens. The entire scope of the Bible, the entire story of redemption finds its culmination in the resurrection of Jesus. It was expected. It was expected. It wasn't this random occurrence It was what God promised to do. And so the New Testament lays out for us that Jesus' resurrection assures us that as Christians, our futures are secure in him. We can place our faith in him because he is the first fruits of all who will come after. It is a guaranteed resurrection. The why about this is found in verses 21 to 22. It's a certain foundation. Now, if you're new to Christianity, this is a little complex. I'm just going to begin there. But I think it's really important. It'll probably blow your religious categories. So stay, stay here, because it's really important. Um, Paul is laying out here two representatives. Two representatives, right? From a man came death, man comes resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, Okay? Death entered through one, the resurrection entered through the other. In the story of the Bible, God makes a promise-bound relationship that we call a covenant with the first humans. Okay? He makes that through this guy named Adam. It's called a covenant. It's called the covenant, a theologian's called the covenant of works. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you won't. Really simple, right? Trust in me instead of trusting in yourself. And you'll live. But Adam broke that. He sought independence from God. But then God promised to make all things right through another promise-bound relationship that theologians call the covenant of grace. Okay? Still with me? And this is a little technical. So every person who was born after Adam, that would be everyone, okay, is by nature independent of God. We are breakers of that first covenant with Adam under him, breaker under him. Okay. 
Now, some of us look really moral with that. We, we see our independence as making a status for ourselves, and some of us look less moral with that, trying to seek our satisfaction apart from God. But both are independent of God. Both are betraying him. So when Jesus came, Jesus came not to just teach. He came to be another representative. If we're all under Adam, we die. But then there's Jesus, and we can be under him. And so he came, in a sense, to create a renewed humanity. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. He becomes our representative. We go from the category of in Adam over to Jesus. You with me? So what is true of him becomes true of us. This means that his life, lived perfectly, becomes ours. He is our representative. His death for sin becomes our death, paying for our sin. And so this is the crucial difference between Christianity and all other religions. Even ones that you follow, even if you don't think you follow a religion. It isn't about what we do or don't do. It's about what Jesus has done. Now, you might be skeptical, so let me get even more technical for a second. Paul says, just as in Adam, all died. Now, if you were looking in the original language, what you would see is when he says died, it's in the active sense. What that means is like it's something we actively do. In Adam, we all die. But in Christ, we've all been made alive. It's passive. It's not something you achieve. It's something you receive. Something that's done to you, not something that you do. In Adam, all died. We sin. We deserve death. We do it. That's what our independence gets us. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. That's passive. It's something done for us. We don't make ourselves alive, whether that's through our obedience to God, our tolerance towards other people, our success, or whatever. Again, Christianity is not about what you achieve, but what is achieved for you. It's not about what you achieve, it's about what you're willing to receive. So let me be really clear. At least according to the New Testament, there are two possible representatives. You are either in Adam, or you're in Christ. You've either placed your faith in Christ, placed your trust in him, and thus have been transferred from one to the other, or you're still there. There's no third category. There's no like, well, I'm Adam-ish. I'm Jesus-ish. Like, I'm working there. No, no. It's either here or here. It's one or the other. Either Jesus represents you before God, or you do. And this is why the resurrection is so important. This is why we can champion God's grace to us, because it isn't about what we do, whether we're worthy. It's, it's, it's not, we did something good, or we are worthy of something. We didn't, and we aren't. But Jesus is. And if he was raised, we, if, rather, if he wasn't raised, we have no hope. But since he is raised, all who come to him can have hope in him. Now, that's all well and good, right? That's what we confess. But what does it matter? Like, what does it matter for you and I? What does it matter in our day-to-day? So let's talk about that really quick in experiencing the resurrection. First, with carrying our curse. In the Bible, the fact that Jesus bore the curse of death for us is a huge deal. But for us, because, look, let's be honest. Most of us in this room aren't thinking about dying. Some of us are. 
Most of us in this room aren't, right? When you're 20s and 30s, you pretty much think you're going to be here forever. It hasn't even crossed your mind. Like, wait a minute. There's a time. I remember when my wife and I first worked up our will and testament. It was like, it's like this is creepy. Why am I supposed to do this? I'm like, what were you, 28, 27? I'm like, why am I doing this? 20, I'm never going to die. We don't think of death, so the curse of death doesn't seem to mean much. And that's because we see category, we see death as a category that means the cessation of life. But in the Bible, death is far broader than just your heart not beating. Death is a curse. It's a curse that encompasses the cessation of biological life, certainly. Before sin entered the world, there was not this. But it also encompasses the separation of our soul from our body. Alienation from God, guilt from sin, loss of worth and value, our feverish pursuit for life. The Bible calls all of those things death. You see, whether you're a Christian or not, my guess is there's an aspect of that curse that you are carrying right now. You're carrying it for yourself. What is the curse that you feel like you will experience if you don't perform well enough? If you don't keep in front of this this expectation, what is the curse that you feel like you're going to experience? Maybe you feel it right now. Maybe it's like rejection or loneliness or judgment or failure. Like what, what curse is it that you're carrying? Maybe, maybe it'll help if I let you into my story a little bit. I am the youngest of four kids. Um, I've got three, three step-siblings. They're all a good bit older than me. And um, my father used to say to me, when we were alone, of course, you're the best one I've got. Ooh. That'll make you feel good, right? Until you're 12 years old... And he sits across from the table from you and he tells you, I'm leaving and never coming back. Then what was meant to be a blessing became a curse. You're the best one I've got and you're not enough to keep me. And so it became a curse. Because as a 12-year-old, that was equated with you've got to be better or you'll be abandoned. And so that became true of me with others. became true of me with God came true of me with everyone. What is the curse that you carry? If I'm not a success, if I'm not good enough, if I'm not not loved by enough people, if someone's mad at me, I've got to perform. I've got to keep this up. I've got to keep going. Listen to me. Paul says in another letter that Jesus became a curse for us in our place. That curse that I carried was basically perform or be abandoned. Do good for me, or I'm out of here. But the resurrection of Jesus tells me that my performance has nothing to do with the presence of God for me, with the love of God for me. Because I couldn't perform, Jesus performed for me. And then died for my failures because, because he loved me. Because. If you're not a Christian here this morning, can you say the same for the God you worship? You're like, I don't worship a God. Yeah, you do. If you don't perform, can you say the same, that your God's going to love you like that? Because I guarantee you, Jesus is the only God who loves you completely when you failed him utterly. He's the only one. 
He's the only God who forgives you totally when you've failed him so consistently. If you are a Christian this morning, are you still clinging to that curse? You don't have to lie. I do. Do you cling to the shame of it, the guilt of it, the fear of it? Maybe it's just the fear of it. Because you're doing pretty good right now. You're performing great. Working good. Doing fine. Until you're not. If so, can I suggest maybe you need help letting go of it? I needed, I needed, and I still do need a counselor to help me with that. There's no shame in that. Okay? Get help, but let Jesus carry that curse because he's already carried it. You don't have to anymore. Get it off your shoulders. Lastly, I want to talk about living in the resurrection. Let me ask you a question. What do you think life would really be like if you really, actually believed that Jesus was raised from the dead? Not just in theory, but as a promise of reconciliation with God and a promise of our own resurrection. What would life be like? Maybe it would be fearless. Because if death can't take you, what can? Right? If, if, if nothing can separate you from the love of God because Jesus has died and risen again so that you can be united to Him. If you have nothing to prove, if your life were secure in the hands of the creator of all things, what would that be like? You could risk a lot, couldn't you? You could be honest, without pretense to others. You could be secure in God's love for you. Maybe it would be fearless. I think it would also be full of hope. You wouldn't have to put any hope in elections. <laughs> or your money. your ability to grind it out. Your future would be secure in Jesus. Be fearless. It would probably be full of hope. I think it would be full of power because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the scripture says, dwells in you as a Christian. Do you get that? Like, not just like, God tolerates me. No, no, no. The resurrection power of Jesus is in you. Don't give me the, I can't change. Life is terrible. I'm just, I'm so broken that the resurrection power of Jesus can't even fix me. What? Death to life. Yeah, but I really, I, I've got this thing. You realize how arrogant it is to think that you're that broken? <laughs> you're that broken that the resurrection power of Jesus can't change you. I think it would be full of power. But I think more than anything, it would be full of joy. And by that, I don't mean this kind of Ned Flanderish, kind of smiley, happy person all the time. I mean deep soul satisfaction in Jesus that allows us to grieve without being destroyed. It allows us to, to delight without feeling the need to consume. It allows us to love without reserve, to serve without demands. Real joy. Because everything is made new in Christ. I think those things are probably a good place to start. What would life be like? I think it would be fearless, full of hope, full of power, full of joy. Jesus is raised. He rose again from the dead. Which means that sin is dealt with, death is defeated, sad things are becoming untrue, or 
to use another British author's world, that long, cold winter, where it's always winter, and never Christmas, it's finally thawing. Let's stop living as if the snow is falling and Jesus is still in the grave. Would you pray with me? Father, you know the doubts that we carry around. You know how even I wrestled with whether or not to spend this last 35 minutes working through a grand apologetic of the resurrection. Here's what I believe, Lord, and I believe that you were in this. The gospel is proclaimed. And the word is preached and lives are changed. Not because we've gotten all of our doubts worked out. And so, Lord, for me and for my friends who do struggle with doubts, I pray that you would make yourself bigger than they are. Bigger than the doubts. Bigger than our fears. And would you transform Holy Cross to be a church that is without fear and full of hope and full of power and full of joy because we we proclaim and rest in and enjoy the truth that on the third day Jesus rose from the dead. And so now would you propel us into our worship to worship our resurrected Lord, conqueror of our sin, bearer of our shame, the one who has reconciled us to God and who, with whom, because we are in him, we can be proclaimed not guilty. Would you do this now, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.